Good Wednesday. It is Wednesday, right? right? It is Wednesday. Okay. Good Wednesday Hello, afternoon, everybody from the heart of Fred Alley. I got confused there for a second. Are you are you awake today? You good? You need some coffee? Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm on my third cup. I'm, I'm doing I'm doing well with the coffee, but uh, look, for I some couldn't reason. even sleep last night. Today is the Uh-oh. book of Boba Fett finale. I couldn't sleep. I wanted to see the end of it. I was a little um. A little unsure on that series, a little shaky the first few episodes, couldn't really find yeah. its direction, and then it did by getting the main character out of the show, and now, coming up, Grogu's choice today. What's he going to pick? What's Baby Yoda going to pick, people? Is he going to take the armor, or is he going to take the lightsaber? What do you, what do you think? He's going to take the armor, Yeah. and then he's going to steal yeah. the lightsaber. So here's my thing. I haven't watched it yet. This is just my prediction. I haven't watched it. I think he takes the armor. Mm-hmm. Luke flies him back to, uh, he's like, all right, I'll take you back to uh, Mando over there. Right. Flies him back. Turns out they're right in the middle of that big battle with the pikes, right? And then Luke and Baby Yoda jump out, and then Baby Yoda uses the force. He's got his armor on. He grabs that Yoda lightsaber, yep. and he kicks some ass along with Luke Skywalker, and we all cheer, and we go home happy. I think that's right. I'm with you. That's what I'm saying. All right, well, let's get on with this show so I can get home and watch it. On today's episode, <laughs> we're going to meet the Port of Vancouver. We're going to talk about fast food logistics and freight songs. We're going to find out about how t- tiny mobile robots may keep you in the fast lane. Uh, we got a ton of other stuff. March of the Jerry Cans, news we're going to get to, all sorts of things. March of the Jerry Cans. Before we get there, let's tip the band. All right, Surge Transportation thinks non-competes are stupid. Non-competes chase away good talent and stop talented people from joining the supply chain industry. Tear up your non-compete. It's not enforceable. Instead, email jobs at surgetransportation.com and do what? Open your own office tomorrow, man. All right. <laughs> That's Headlines. What you're to do. I was thinking, occupy south of the border. <laughs> occupy south of the border over there. <laughs> All right. Who wants to? Who wants to own a trucking company? Retailers are starting to line up. Heard about a few of these, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I used to work for. Before I even get into the story, I used to work for a uh, a broker. We dealt mostly with global trade, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they bought a trucking company, and they sold that trucking company. Good move. Because owning a trucking company is very expensive. It is, and generally a broker doesn't, or a 3PL doesn't buy a trucking company. They usually don't. Buy assets. Usually just... assets go by yes. the other, right? <laughs> so let's find out, though. So we got here, Brian Strait reports, BJ's Wholesale Clubs, American Eagle Outfitters, Ashley Furniture, they're among this growing trend of retailers trying to buy their own capacity. They're trying to buy their own logistics teams on both <clears> the ocean and the land. Supply chain chaos brought by COVID, right? Disruptions, rates skyrocketing, maybe time to take control. It might be. You know, I mean, you look at the sonar data, according yeah. to the sonar data, van contract rates, right? They've been on a steady climb since 2017. You can see it right there. It's right? a very steady climb. They're sitting at two seventy-five or two, yeah, two dollars seventy-five cents uh, uh, right now. I mean, they, they've come down a little bit, but they were up to two eighty-six. But they're still very high. They're still a buck above what they used to be, right? So, I mean, every mile a retailer freight move, moves freight right now is a buck more expensive than it was just uh, what three and a half years ago. Yeah, and uh, the big problem for retailers is. In capacity markets like this, and, you, and a lot of times this is the worst time to make a decision because yeah. retailers, they, they don't have the leverage. But the problem is they also don't with contracts, right? Because in freight, contracts don't matter. They're torn up all the time on ocean and they on are. land. That's just the nature of freight. Some people call them paper rates. They're not yeah. really that enforceable. <laughs> you know, I, I get the desire to want to take control of that type of stuff. Let me ask you, man, good, if you good don't idea know what to, you're doing, that can kill you. Good idea to pick up the assets, though. 
I don't think so. I, don't I mean, it depends. So it depends. Ashley Furniture does a good job with their assets, right? But others, you don't have the density. It's just your stuff on that trucking company. I think some of these are back on the market within two or three years. I so. agree. I, I agree. agree. All I right. Agree. Uh, grading Trump's China deal. It gets an F. That's according to one man. Eric Kulish reports former President Donald Trump's claimed his strong tariffs forced the Chinese government in December 2019 to make a trade deal headlined by $200 billion in annual commitments to purchase U.S. exports. In reality, though, China ended up buying none of the promised goods, Michael Vincent, and the trade war did little to change China's economic policymaking, which ended up hurting the U.S. economy. That's the verdict of Chad Brown. He's a senior fellow at Peterson Institute for International Economics. That's his take. Yeah, he's a pretty smart dude. And his analysis of new Commerce Department data shows that China only bought 57% of the total goods and services that it committed to purchase uh, in 2021, 20, uh, uh, which fell short, way short of the baseline for 2017 even, right, mm-hmm. where the baseline was. And China, buying none of the additional $200 billion export uh, dollars in exports, agreed to, in fact, U.S. exports to China likely would have been higher without the trade war in the so. phase one agreement. That's his analysis there, bro. It's not all bad, though. He said Mm. that there were some positive elements that he highlighted here, and that should be continued, including China's agreement to get rid of some of the technical barriers to agricultural trade, especially here on the on the export side. Right. Protections for foreign intellectual property and uh, forced transfer of technology and opening up its financial sector. But in terms of reducing the U.S. trade deficit, it simply didn't work, as uh, as you saw in that chart right there. Yeah, it did not. Back to the drawing board. (laughs) Back to the the drawing board. Well, Glimmer of Hope has the ship gridlock off ports finally peaked. This is actually some good stuff. Let's be positive here. Greg Miller reports that port congestion, which dramatically worsened in the second half of 2021, it seemed like there would be no end in sight. It appears to have at least temporarily peaked, although it's too soon to tell if that's just seasonal or a sign of greater things to come. Yeah, we don't know. The number of container ships waiting at berth at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach fell to 78 on Tuesday. That's yesterday, my friend. The lowest tally in three months. That's down 23% from the 101 ships in February 1st. Uh, and the average for the month of January was also 101, right? That was the yeah. average back then. So that's down 28% from an all-time high of 109. Uh, Not bad. And, um, but it's still but up, it's still 100, 160%. Still up 160% year over year. So <laughs> still a challenge over there. But you got to highlight the good things when there's been a lot of bad. Commenting on the port congestion, John Costas, he's the CEO over at Danos, he told uh, analysts on Tuesday, we have seen a steady situation at the ports. It's not worsening, but it's not getting better either. Yeah. It is stabilized. So at least there's that going for us. we got Flexport Chief Economist Phil Levy told American Shipper, I think there are some reasons to think things may be easing, easing off. I think this one bears watching a little more closely. One reason he cites, and I think that a lot of us have cited, is that return to spending to services. Now, we also, I recall, having deja vu here, we said the same exact thing around this time last year. Yeah, well, we everyone's going to put their money back yeah. into services. Yep. That's what we thought. Other waves of coronavirus came in and it kicked off the whole thing. And 2021 ended up repeating and being worse than 2020 in a lot of ways. Absolutely. The thing, though, is disposable income is down. It is. There's not quite as much as it was before. I'll say anecdotally, so my kids now, they're in, like, piano, swimming, and mm-hmm. uh, and soccer. All yeah. things they weren't, like, in the past two years. So some of our money, at least, is going back to services. Yep. Let's take a look at this video here. I'll give you an introduction on what the Port of Vancouver, USA, does. Then we have a great guest to talk to from there.
right? A couple hundred miles distance, I would think. Well, it's a beautiful looking place. I want to hear more about it. And we have a wonderful guest with us. Who is joining us today from the Port of Vancouver, USA? Introduce yourself, young man. Hey, guys. Uh, good uh, day to you. Alex Trojan, uh, Chief Commercial Officer uh, here at the Port of Vancouver. Wow. So, you know, we saw that video. It looks beautiful. And one of the funny things uh, Julie told me was that a lot of people are, they think that they're sending stuff up to Canada, the, the port of Vancouver on the port. We actually have a map. And if you do that, you will end up having to truck yourself yeah, you're uh, 300, 400 miles yeah. up there. So tell us a little bit about, um, about yourself in this port here to set the table. Yeah, we were here first. Uh, we're, we were the first Vancouver. They, they took our name from us. So, uh, yeah, no. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it is a challenge, right, to always differentiate yourself uh, from, our, from our big brother uh, to the north. Uh, but uh, being right here in, uh, in the heart of the Pacific Northwest, right on the Columbia River, it's, uh, it's a fantastic place to be. And, you know, certainly uh, I think, you know, the, the Columbia River, the great, uh, the great American River of the West uh, is sometimes, uh, quite frankly, a little bit forgotten, but it's astonishing the economic engine uh, that this river really is not only here for the Pacific Northwest, but uh, for a large swath of the country as well. Yeah, who knew Vancouver was right across the river from Portland, Oregon? I mean, it's just, you right, see exactly. it. You almost drive, you almost drive a golf ball across that thing. But introduce yourself yeah. a little bit. I, your background, you've been around the world working uh, with, with ports and have quite a bit of experience, including a uh, little time with APL in uh, Dubai. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been in the maritime industry my, my entire career. So I uh, went to the Maritime Academy, went to Texas A&M, and uh, from there was uh, with some of the big container carriers like APL and Maersk, uh, doing some different uh, jobs for them, both domestically as well as overseas in the Middle East uh, for a number of years. Uh, had the chance to come back here to the States and uh, worked uh, for General Electric, uh, managing all GE's uh, ocean chartering uh, for all the equipment and uh, things that GE makes, everything from a locomotive to a gas turbine to a wind turbine uh, to an MRI machine, uh, anything that didn't fit inside your standard ocean container. Uh, I was responsible for you know, finding a way to move it around the world and uh, was uh, was ready for a change. And uh, this opportunity came up uh, here at the port, and uh, it's it's been it's been fantastic. Ports are really cool. I mean, you know, they really are where everything comes together. So you mm -hmm. kind of get a chance to touch every piece of that supply chain. Well, you, I mean, you're not that old, but you have a ton of experience because as you mentioned here, when you're mentioning your background, you went to Maritime Academy, you went to Texas A&M for Maritime. But let me ask you, like, what teenager is really all that, like, psyched and jazzed about getting into maritime trade? Did you have blood in this business or what, like, really fascinated you about ports? You know, honestly, I love being around the water. I mean, there is something so romantic about ships. I mean, they, I mean, you look at these things. I mean, look at that thing. That thing is just gorgeous. Cool. Yeah, they're that. pretty cool. I mean, you know, there is something just beautiful about, you know, seeing these massive, you know, pieces of equipment and realizing that that thing is going to transit around the world and you know here in a few weeks it's going to be sitting you know off of shanghai and you know there's a whole other set of eyes looking at it it's just it's just such a cool thing to be a part of um and I, I think that you know for young people you know who are really interested in getting into a business that you know is truly global in every sense of the word what an what an amazing opportunity the maritime business is yeah, and, and a very good and romanticized description of those ships. I, I love it. I could feel the love in your heart. Uh, let, let's, <laughs> let's hear the romantic description of the Port of Vancouver. What do you guys generally handle there? Uh, tell us about the operations there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I know you guys talk a lot about the container side of the business, which, let's be honest, it's the 800-pound gorilla right uh, out, here on, out here on the West mm -hmm. Coast. But 
you know, there's a ton of, uh, of us, you know, we'll call mid-sized ports that are moving, you know, all these other things that are outside, you know, the confines of your standard 20 foot, 40 foot container. Um, so, you know, you know we, we talk about moving vast amounts of agriculture, uh, autos, uh, steel, uh, you know, mineral earths, um, you know, the building blocks of society is really, you know, what, you know, we talk about, about moving. Um, and it's, I think it's easily overlooked, but it is an incredible, uh, incredibly important part uh, of our nation's supply chain and, and the global supply chain is, as well. I mean, when you look at the fact that, you know, just here in our port, uh, here on the Columbia River, of all the wheat that exports out from the United States of America, 15% of that flows through just this port. 50%, 5-0% flows through the Columbia River. You think about all the animals and people that are fed globally uh, because of this river. It, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. I and mean, we all know, we all hear the thing, right? You know, America feeds the world and, and, and a big chunk of that flows right here through the Columbia River. Now, I was looking, so some of our listeners, they probably don't know what freight looks like if it's not in a 40-foot or a 20-foot or a 53. Now, I saw that big uh, room you had there, that big hangar full of, I believe that was copper. It was like gigantic mounds of copper. Give us a little education. How does break bulk work, and how is that different than handling containerized trade? Not so much better. I mean, you get you get to see, touch, feel, smell, you know, the cargo. I mean, you know, it's not just a box, it's a box, it's a box, it's a box, right? I mean, you know, they, I mean, when you get to see the copper concentrate uh, there uh, on the ground at our at our warehouse, or you get to, you know, feel the grain pass through your hand, or you get to, you know, touch the automobile, you get to, you know feel the steel, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the wind energy, you know, uh, that you saw pictures of as well. Um, you know, that this is the you know, project break bulk, bulk cargoes, uh, that, uh, that are really, I think, you know, so exciting to be a part of because you, know, you really are, again, you have know, seeing that cargo, um, you know, and feeling that cargo. Yeah, so Alex, you know, we, we you hear us talking about all the time the imports and the exports and the movement of boxes in and trying to get the empties out through Port of L.A. ad nauseum. We talk about it, it's a real problem. You guys are primarily export, right? Uh, and so what's what's the, what are the difference there, being primarily or so heavily skewed towards one side, which is export? Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, we all we, we as Americans, right, we always fret about, you know, this issue of us, you know, we're, we're sucking in all these imports from around the world. And we talk about this trade imbalance. So it is so cool to be a part of the port that is so heavily focused on, on the export side of the equation. I mean, so, you know, when we talk about our exports, I mean, we're talking about, you know, primarily about our agricultural products. We're talking about our mineral bulk products. And so for us, you know, we're talking about, you know, providing a gateway to global markets for, you know, farming communities out across the Dakotas. Uh, we're talking about providing that gateway to uh, mines in Montana and uh, in Nevada, uh, make sure that these, you know, commodities get out to these global markets. I mean, you know, we talked about copper. I mean, we all know coppers. I mean, that's a critical element for where we are going as a society. When we talk about, you know, batteries and all the EVs that we're going to need, all the electronics in our hand, all that copper is just is in desperate need. And, and so it's, it's fantastic to be a, the gateway for that commodity to hit those global markets. Well, Alex, the Columbia River has been called the liquid highway. But I got to ask you, so when you're handling the liquid highway, what's different about a river port than an ocean port? What kind of advantages and limitations do you do you get from that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'll touch on the disadvantage first. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're 100 miles, you know, up uh, upriver uh, from the coast. And so when you are in shipping, um, time is money, right? So, you know, that, that ship, you know, is, is having to transit up uh, to us. That, that's, that's an expensive uh, journey uh, for a vessel. Um, that said, though, you know, it's unique in where we are located at because you, when you look at some of our rail connectivity, you look at the, the great northern route uh, that comes in across the United States, really starts uh, in Chicago and then uh, cuts up across the Dakotas, across Montana. I mean, that, that rail route dead ends right here into the Port of Vancouver, right here in the Columbia River. And that is a massive conduit uh, for so many of these commodities that we've, that we've chatted about. So it provides us a distinct advantage. And two, you know, from from that perspective, you know, we are also protected from a lot of the elements that you would find on the coast. Um, you know, our, our protection from storms and wave action you know, really helps, you know, I think, make us a, a port that doesn't have to deal with a lot of those uh, headwinds that maybe a coastal port would. Yeah, that all makes complete sense. So, you know, when we're looking at the congestion at the other ports, like in Southern California, et cetera, has that provided any opportunities for you guys or caused anything with you being that you're such a differently diverse uh, port? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a terrible pun, but you know, the folks have really thought a lot outside the box. Um, you know, so cargoes that maybe historically would have gone in containers because they can't get the slots, they can't get the containers, the transit times are a mess, the ports are a mess, you know, with these big container ports. So we've seen shippers, you know, really being creative and saying, Hey, you know what? I can move this break bulk. I don't have to put this inside a container. And so we have seen all types of different commodities, you know, being stripped out of boxes and, and moved in the break bulk fashion, uh, which has been fantastic. Like Legos, probably, huh? Well, Legos would be great. Just build them out <laughs> right out there on the deck with your with your break bolt stuff. Well, speaking speaking of break bolts and really big items like Legos, there's a nice Lego windmill that was out the past oh, couple yeah, of yeah, years. Yeah. And also, we've covered the trucking size of windmills. So let's talk about some of those turbine blades. I saw the picture of that turbine blade uh, on a truck by you. I'm imagining that came into the port. But why would it go 100 miles upriver to the port of Vancouver, USA? Uh, how did you become a blade terminal? Yeah, I mean, so we handle more wind energy than any port on the West Coast. Um, you know, wind energy is a backbone uh, for for this port. Um, and when you're moving these blade components, when I first started in the industry, we were moving blade components you know, that were hanging out the backside of a 45-foot container. That's a baby blade. I mean, now today we're talking, you saw the, I think, the comparison. I mean, we're moving blades that are the size of the Statue of Liberty. Um, we've, we handled the biggest wind blades ever brought into North America. We're talking 77 meters was last year. We're going to do a 78 meter, uh, blade here this summer. Um, these are gargantuan components. And so when, you know, these OEMs, so, you know, talk about Siemens Mesa or GE and, you know, when they look at what ports they're going to be selecting, they need a port that has the clearances, uh, to get these components from here uh, at the port of import to where they need to go. And what's been fantastic for us is, is that so much of our wind energy today, it's actually not destined here for uh, the Pacific Northwest in the United States. It's actually going up into Alberta and into Saskatchewan. And you would say, well, okay, Alex, why are they not going to the West Coast of Canada? I mean, Vancouver, BC has got a, a fantastic port. It's because they don't have the clearances. I mean, these things are so big, you truly have to have some incredible highway infrastructure, river infrastructure to be able to get these things to where they need to go. And so we have really taken on that primary gateway for the Canadians to get their wind energy from overseas into their country. 
Yeah, so the infrastructure, the density of population, et cetera, between where the port is and where the stuff is going is highly important as to what port. Makes complete sense. So how has uh, COVID affected your port over over this past, uh, you know, two years? Yeah, it's what, what a wild ride it's been, right? Um, you know, I think for us, uh, the biggest challenge has been trying to keep our, our labor supply healthy. Um, you know, we are uh, we we use the ILW, the International Longshoremen Warehouse Union, just like all the other West Coast ports do. And so, you know, keeping these men and women, you know, healthy uh, has been just you know a real challenge in, in, in keeping them, you know, feeling safe uh, and, and able to to come to work. Um, because you know, certainly as we've seen, as folks have stayed home and and spent their money not on services but rather on these goods, you know, the volumes have just continued to increase. And so for us, you know, keeping that labor, labor supply, uh, you know, healthy and engaged has, has been our primary focus. Now, Alex, up in the Great White North, there's a little bit of a battle going on right now with the Freedom Convoy of truckers yeah. and vaccine mandates and all those things. You service there. You even said you said blades up there. Have you noticed any impacts yet, though, in terms of finding capacity to bring freight back and forth at the border due to the mandates? You know, not yet, but I will say, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges for the wind energy OEMs is, is finding truck capacity. There just, there simply is not enough of these truly highly skilled truck drivers out there that can navigate these massive components for, you know, literally 1500 miles uh, from here up into, up into Canada. So, you know, those, those men and women, their time is so valuable. Those assets are so valuable. So from a, from a port perspective, you know, our focus is trying to get those assets turned as quickly as we possibly can, because those when those assets are idled and those men and women are idled behind the wheel, that's that's not a good use. Um, and so there's not enough of them and we got to keep them moving. Yeah, absolutely. So, Alex, let's uh, let's talk a, a real quick about um, HWH quarter, the high, uh, wide and heavy quarter with the coalition of ports. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, and you know, so we I think we realized that hey, look, you know, we want to continue to compete in this project cargo market. You know, notably these big, you know, big pieces, heavy pieces. You know, and, and no no one entity is going to be able to really set the stage for success unless we collectively, as a as a region, came together. So talking about the stevedores, the port authorities, the trucking companies here to really try to find solutions to help you know carve out an, an even better pathway than exists today um, so that we can compete quite honestly uh, against the likes of the of the Gulf Coast of the United States which is the project mecca of the world you know how do we ensure that you know when folks are moving some of these really you know, amazing pieces of, of project cargo we have to carve a path for them we have to show a way you know for them to get through from a permitting perspective from a route clearance perspective and, and make a clear set of you know guidelines for them to be able that they can they can have predictability um, and I think reliability. And so that's really what this whole group has been uh, about trying to put together. Well, I guess my last question for you is just a stat I saw the other day was that 35.8 in 2021 container ships only arrived on time 35.8% of the time. That was <laughs> down from the low 60% in 2020, already a disruptive year. Are, is the schedule reliability coming into your port significantly better than that? It, it is, you know, be, not being a container port helps dramatically, you know, um, and I think we have been, you know, when 2020 happened, um, look, nobody foresaw the pandemic uh, transpiring. Um, and so we were scrambling all throughout 2020 to keep our velocity, you know, where we wanted it to be. And 
I think after 2020, we said, okay, look, you know, we've got to be extremely diligent in, in how we allocate, you know, the, the port's infrastructure, but also the port's available labor. So we have been extremely careful uh, about how we sign up for business uh, and ensuring that the business that we do sign up for is, is not going to strain the port to the point where we not are not going to be able to deliver uh, for, our, for our customers. And it takes a lot of work. I mean, we, we say no a lot. Uh, because we don't want to overburden uh, what we can realistically deliver on. Wow, what a cool, unique port. And the reason I ask that is because um, in the past year, it could have gone either way. A lot of the smaller sure. ports, you would think, oh, they'd use them as runoffs, but places like Boston actually had calls canceled so <laughs> carriers could chase that lucrative freight down in uh, down in Los Angeles and uh, in actually Savannah now, too. Yeah, that's exactly Pretty cool. right. So people who want to work with Port of Vancouver, USA, they have some of those exports, they want to bring in some blades. Where do I send them to? Yeah, you can send them uh, to our, our website. You can also send them directly to me. Um, you know, we'd be happy to speak with them. We're always excited to talk to new new partners uh, for the port. You know, we really do value long term relationships. Most most of our tenants uh, here at the port, most of our long term customers, have been here for quite some time. So uh, we're excited to uh, to talk to you. Thanks, Alex. Your passion for this inspired us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Love it, uh, guys. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. It's always in like the voice in the eyes too, when people like really, really love what they do. When I saw that he, yeah. from an early, from his teenage years, was already going to school. He was like, "This is what I want to do." I don't love what. And then he's living. You don't see a lot of people in freight who went to school to be doing the job that they're doing. Maybe you don't in a lot of industries, but in freight, you certainly yeah. don't. Most of them went to school to be doctors. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're here. <laughs> John Brewer went to Hamburger University to work in fast food. He's director of distribution and logistics at CKE Restaurants. He also likes a good trucking song. He does. He fell in love with cheeseburgers at an early age. He fell in love with cheeseburgers <laughs> at an early age. John, at what age did you know you were going to work in fast food? Um, uh, 50. <laughs> Sweet. John, how you doing today, man? How are things uh, how are things treating you? And for those who haven't caught you since you've been on last time, introduce yourself because I know you don't just work with CKE, you also work with uh what Nashville Transportation Club too. You're always trying to put together uh, cool things for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um we do the uh, I'm the advisor for the Nashville Transportation Club. Uh we do scholarships to the supply chain grads in the mid mid-state area. Uh, we gave out last year, we were able to give out three scholarships uh, to some Lips Lipscomb University students. Uh, they have a new supply chain program there and they're partnering with us. We're pretty excited about it. Uh, that's uh, kind of what I do in my off season. And then, uh, like you said, me and the dude are in the in the studio, you know, busting out lyrics and laying down tracks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the supply chain masses have spoken and we have heard you. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, John, I am, I'm glad you. I'm glad. First of all, I'm glad you said that because uh, a couple of things are going to happen now. First of all, we did the meme championship, so we're having a lot of like freight fun with freight. We had meme yeah. championship on Monday. I guess Trey Griggs is going to be battle rapping some other dude on this show oh, in the really? near future. We <laughs> might have to have a battle. Is Kevin Hill going to lay down up? the beats for that? Yeah, I hope he does. <laughs> I hope he does. We'll need to bring the drum machine for that one. But you mentioned those songs, and for those who didn't ca ca catch it. I can't speak right now. We made a little montage of a couple of songs you wrote. Play the tape. It was all that I could do to keep from crying. <laughs> I love this video. Everyone began to feel the strain. But people kept on buying, buying. No, they never, ever heard about supply chain.
Oh, I'm not. Get volume. Get that volume up. No volume, man. Bummer. Where's the volume, boys? I don't know. Oh, they got no volume on that. Either way, it's probably better without the volume. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go, Sean. We did, Chris, we did the Christmas song, and we did, that, uh, we did that trucking song. How do you think they came out? Oh, I enjoyed them immensely. I thought, okay. I mean, the dude rocked them, man. He totally rocked them. I think, <laughs> did you guys just figure out how that, did, did the guys in the back, do you have sound on that? No, they don't. Okay, right. never mind. We could re- we want to recreate it? No. <laughs> no, so I got to ask you, so this inspired me to ask you, what is your favorite trucking song? Mm, that's a good one. Uh, they've been playing Convoy a lot. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Space trucking, man. Deep purple. Space I like trucking. it. Subtle. Subtle and smart. Subtle and smart. I would go with Sammy Hagar's Winner Take It All. I'm not sure if it counts, but it was in Over the Top. It does it's because it was in that song. The arm wrestling montage. It okay, does. then it counts. It does. I think it counts. I, I think it counts. You know, John did all his own stunts in that video. The, the Sammy Hagar one? <laughs> no, the video. Oh, you the just video you guys the, filmed. Yeah, yeah, actually, back when he had hair and, yeah, and the mustache. Was, yeah, yeah, when I had hair, yeah. Back in his <laughs> earlier days. Well, let me ask you, so what's going on in the world of fast food logistics? Carl's Jr. Hardee's, I've been on a bunch of road trips lately, passing you guys all the time, so you're awfully busy. And it's, uh, it's, 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 it's going out there, I tell you. Uh, a lot of things going on. Um, you know, obviously, everybody's kind of dealing with the labor shortages uh, across the board. Um Food inflation is is definitely a factor right now. Inflation as a whole is a factor. Uh, we are starting to see some uh, some manufacturing gains in items. Uh, we're not running uh, as light on inventory as we normally would. We've done some things kind of behind the scenes to help help with that. And uh, but yeah, it's twenty two is going to be an uphill year for everybody, I believe. And maybe we'll see some plateauing in twenty three. Yeah, yeah. No, I saw it uh, recently, you know, Japan almost ran out of French fries, which would have been a major, major global disaster. What are, what are, what are the items that you guys have the biggest pain, uh, you know, keeping in stock and moving? Right now it's packaging. Uh, a lot yeah. of that stuff come, uh, comes from across the pond and, and getting through the ports is a challenge. Wow. Because yeah. we've heard of so many. Like, there, there's the big chicken shortage that was going on last yeah. year. You oh, mentioned yeah. those McNuggets. French fries right around uh, December. Really, Flexport flew, the, flew those fries over there. That's right. um, you know what my kids like to get when they're out there? They like to get a kid's meal. And it made me curious because I stopped at one place, and they had, like, the box for the kid's meal was for a movie that, like, wasn't coming out. I think it was for, like, Encanto. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. because things had been, like, delayed so much, I think they just, like, were like, ah, oh, we're going to just throw these toys out here. How much of a challenge has it been to bring products like that into the stores that you have to time up with your food products and also have to time up with promotions? Uh, it hasn't been too bad for us. Um, we we stayed pretty much on target. Uh, the toys are kind of a different thing altogether. Uh, we have had those. Uh, our vendor has flown those in from time to time just to just to make lead times for us. So uh, I think we've been really really lucky in that area, and uh, obviously not as hard pressed as everybody else. Yeah, what about what about the labor shortage and that type of stuff in the in the industry? You know, you drive by some of these places, you go there, and you're waiting in line sometimes for an hour and a half or whatever it is. Incredible amount of demand and slowing down. Has that been affecting in your side in logistics? Uh, it's not so much in logistics. Uh, you know, it's you know QSRs. I mean, you you see the help wanted signs all over the city everywhere yeah. you go. Uh, a lot of a lot of restaurants. Uh, I went past one that wasn't ours the other day, and. They were running the drive-through only. They weren't even running the uh, the dining room because they didn't have the staff to run it. So uh, it's it's you know it's plaguing all around. I mean, you see it you know long wait times. You see it um, you know in the grocery stores. 
just everywhere. Retail is getting hit. I mean, it's just, it's, I've never seen anything like this in my entire career. Well, I mean, look, it's, it, when you talk about inflation, they had to change the name of the $6 burger to the $12 burger. <laughs> going on out there. I don't know if you guys even still have the, the $6 burger. There's a huge, but no, back in like 2000, 2004, I was living in Southern California and the $6 burger was like massive. They had like nonstop uh, promotions. Really? Hilton was like on a car. Is that Carl's Jr.? Is that right? what that was? Carl's Jr. That would oh, is the Christmas song here? I don't I heard know. Christmas it's song my here for some reason. Well, John, what what yeah. uh? So you already kind of predicted that you don't see a lot of easing on your side of the supply chain. What has been um? What do you predict will be the biggest challenge moving forward this year, though? Do you think it's still going to be labor and uh, the store side is going to have those struggles? I was just on that road trip I mentioned, and so many of these fast food stops that I stopped at were incredibly short staffed. I mean, oh, like yeah. one kitchen person, one register person. I think you're still going to see those labor shortages go throughout the rest of this year. Um, inflation is is obviously going to hang around for a little while longer. Like I said, it's I fully believe this is going to be an uphill climb for us. Uh, the promising thing is coming into the new year, you know, we are starting to see some of the manufacturing of stuff ease up a little bit in certain areas. So that's kind of promising. We really haven't seen that the last couple of years. So I'm, I'm taking that as a win and and hopefully we keep that momentum and just keep climbing that hill and, and get to more stable ground. Hey, it turns out there is a toy in this kid's meal, Michael Vincent. Oh, they is. fixed the Christmas audio. Play it. Yeah, look at this. All right, yeah, that's enough of that one. We don't have to go all the way Cades really makes that song, right? That, well, John, I well, can't wait for you to write the next song for us so we can hear it right here on What the Truck. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on. Take it easy. All right. With fully furnished state-of-the-art repair trucks and a full array of roadside tools, you can expect the safest, fastest, and most painless response from your fleet from Love's Truck Care and Speedco. To learn more about their roadside assistance, tell them where to go. Hey, go to loves.com we're gonna immediately talk, after the show. We're going to talk about some really cool oh. tiny mobile robots, and we have a video cool. right now that will give you an idea of what these do. So let's All roll right. up before we go to our guest. Austin Bridge and Road continues to use breakthrough innovation and technology, combined with its long history of operational excellence in asphalt paving. The Austin Bridge and Road Survey Department uses its RDM1 mobile scanner before construction begins on mill and overlay projects. They then generate line work from the scan data and upload it into Austin Bridge and Road's latest field technology, the Tiny Mobile Robot, or TMR. Based on advanced robotic software and artificial intelligence, this tiny reliable outdoor robot performs high precision marking and stakeout. Once the roadway has been milled and overlaid with new asphalt, the TMR marks the exact location for striping in a fraction of the time it takes using traditional methods. How efficient is this robot? Conventionally, a three-person crew would mark out 30 feet per minute, while in the same time, our robotic friend marks out 275 feet and with fewer people. Said another way, what takes three people nearly three hours to lay out one mile is now done in 20 minutes by the TMR and one person. 
freeing up personnel to add value in other areas of our operation. Committed to safety, we benefit from the TMR's semi-autonomous capabilities when marking lines adjacent to live traffic and removing employee owners from these high-risk work environments. Building on our core values, safety, integrity, service, and employee ownership, Austin Bridge and Road continues to drive innovation and excellence, keeping us miles ahead. Mobile Robots, he's here with us now. Those are those are really neat. And Jens, I'll tell you something. So uh, last Friday, I had to drive from here, Chattanooga, to North Carolina in a terrible rainstorm. It was raining the entire way. It was dark. It was night out. And um, the first thing I said to my dad is like, man, we got to put some of this infrastructure built into just putting lines on the road. I could barely tell what lane I was in. The whole ride up there it was terrible, Jens. Thanks for joining us, Hello. man. <laughs> Thank you. You, are, you are overseas. Where are you joining us from today? From Denmark in Europe, so uh, it's getting late here, but uh, it's a pleasure to be here in your show. I really enjoy it. I'm still Thank dancing from your uh, music just before. <laughs> well, yeah, it's <laughs> a wonder dancing. we didn't become rock stars instead of podcasters, <laughs> yeah. but uh, maybe that video is evidence of, of why it is why how it is. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about tiny mobile robots. These, these are really cool. This is one of those robot use cases. You yeah. look at what they do, not just on the roads, but in sports, and you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's a, that, that seems like something that should exist. Um, tell us why you started the company and what the idea behind this all is, though. I've been working as a technology consultant for, for many years and uh, making great products for my customers. And I thought it could be fun to, to, to do something for myself, sort of starting a company with, using some of the ideas. And then uh, I made a researcher that had made uh, this as a very simple prototype. It was sort of if it rained, it had put, to put a, a raincoat on it. There was a laptop, not a computer on it and stuff like that. But I asked him, this this could be something. You got a customer who who like to do this layouting with the robot. You got, uh, and you got a prototype. This this can be to this can become a company. And the researcher said, no, it's not interesting for me. I've done the research, and that's not fun for me anymore. And then I asked him, can I take over? And he said yes. So that's actually how it started. <laughs> I, I wanted to build something, and he didn't want to 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 pursue it. So that was my luck. It's really, really interesting. So, how does it? How do? They, how do they work? Are they running off a of GPS? I mean, they seem so precise for lanes or ball fields and stuff yeah. like that. Is GPS precise yeah. enough, or how? Do, how does it? How does that work? Yeah, and I think uh, it might confuse someone because we are currently seeing pictures from indoor where we're using something the land surveyor is called a total station that's using laser signals to to get the accuracy. Oh, okay. uh, but but before what we saw outdoor was uh, GPS based. GPS, when you use it on your phone or in your car, is is using the information from the GPS. But uh, land surveyors are used to use much more accurate, where they use the wave carrying the, the information, which is 1,000 times more accurate. And that's actually what we're using. So we're using the land surveying technology. That has been around for about uh, 20 years, but has been improved. And, and today allows that you outdoor using GPS and also the Russian GLONASS, the Chinese Beidou, and the European Galileo satellites can get down to half an inch of accuracy. You know, I'm from Boston, and whenever, uh, whenever they have to paint lines on the road, yeah. they have, like, two guys painting and then, like, ten state police officers. So in my head, I'm just watching, like, this image of a bunch of stadies <laughs> watching these, these robots go around. Yeah. But, you know, I'm looking at these two models you have. So you got sports and you got roads, but these seem like two completely different markets. What's the difference between trying to penetrate both? I'm, I was kind of curious about that when I was looking through these videos. 
that that's uh, uh, first of all it's it's a challenge because uh, it is more or less the same technology the electronics the uh, the the hardware and the software is more or less the same so we started in in the boat area with with the layouting and then we we said this can be used for for sports field uh, lining sports field also and and that turned out to be pretty easy uh, so, so that's what you're seeing now the small robot making the uh, the uh, the lines for American football in this case uh, and uh, it's pretty small and that was one of our ambitions to make them extremely compact and easy to handle uh, we used a lot of effort on the user interface also ensuring that that it's that you really don't need any education because in the sports field people normally don't have any education they are groundsmen they are greenkeepers they they don't they don't have the long education they are they are hands-on people. So we needed to make an extremely easy to use interface where you actually just take a, a template or a soccer field, you put it with your finger or a Google map to where you want it to be, and then you say save and activate it and the, the robot starts working precisely where you, you put it on the Google map. On the, um, the yellow robots, as we call them, for the infrastructure, for the roads, uh, it's quite often land surveyors with more... Uh, theoretical background that, that's able to use more complicated technology and sometimes bring the, the, their own GPS, bring your own GPS uh, is a little our concept in the land surveying world. So this it's this is a more, we could say, advanced. And you can see this this machine that we, we see here, the GPS on top of it is actually one that, that the, the, the Austin guy has bought himself and then integrated to our robot. So here it's actually just a plotter. It's plotting the cat files that he made in his office, plotting the cat file out in the real life. So it's a, a real life plotter plotting the lines as he's, in, he's designed in his desk. So how long would That's this take? How long would this take to paint um, either like a mile of roadway or a, a football field? Uh, if you take American football, it uh, takes about two hours, uh, and and it doesn't matter if there's any lines before or not if so if you sort of have a completely green field and need to start typically it takes uh, 20 to 30 man hours to make the first layout if it's soccer it takes five to six hours to make the first layout but the robot doesn't care it just mark it with the same time because it doesn't look uh, at lines that's already there and just mark it based on what's in 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 the computer that makes perfect sense. So what about other applications for this one that's painting out these lines? I think of, you know, uh, call before you dig type of PSAs in the United States. And, you know, oh, yeah. like, you know, marking out utilities that are underground for heavy construction or building construction, that type of stuff. Yeah, gas lines, there electrical it? lines in the ground. Yeah, all those yeah, kind of yeah. Things, or yeah. mapping out the, the building for the crew that's going to come in and dig out for the basement or for the foundation. Yeah. The, the robot, the business case for the robot works best if there's sort of some free space around and that's that's probably why it's not used so much for utility marking because it's always if it's in the road there's parked car or there's a lot of stuff around, so so you need to be able to to jump a little around. A two-legged person works better there, but 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 I mean it would a lot of the utility are available in digital format that could be easily uh, used by the robot if there was space in the field for for the marking. Uh, but the other uses we've seen is uh, solar cell parks or photovoltaic parks, as you call it. Uh, there's sometimes you have uh, fifty thousand, sometimes one hundred thousand uh, panels you need to to mount, and the robot sort of mark all these uh, piles for the panels. 
So that, that's another use case. We also see it used in when you're making big pipe projects or, or in rail projects, see it used in, in, in airports. We actually have one customer. The only thing he used it for is making a three-mile long straight line because just pre-layouting a, a three-mile straight line this is actually extremely difficult. Yeah, but for the robot, you just be. connect the point like, one end. That sounds like a squid game. End. <laughs> so even in like warehouse layouts of warehouse, et cetera, right? If you're gonna if you got a warehouse, you're gonna start racking it or spacing it out uh, logically. This would this would work. You got a five hundred thousand million square foot warehouse, right? What about safety though, Jens? Like, what if like a cartoon character I fall asleep in the middle of the road? Would this thing just like ride over me and put a line like across my belly? <laughs> or does it like know that someone's <laughs> there? The the, uh, the the newer models we have have ultrasonic sensors, so they would they would they would stop. But but safety is also also the other way around because working with this uh, this uh, road construction projects, there's big machines and sometimes uh, fast traffic nearby, and we have two uh, dead robots. And if it wasn't the robot that was doing the marking, there would have been persons. So so the robot is 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 saving lives because it's it's in the dangerous spots. And uh, some countries are considering saying it's not allowed to have a human here because it's too dangerous. It's much better to have a robot doing the layouting and the person can maybe observe the robot from a distance, from a safe distance. So, so the, there's, there's also that dimension of the safety. Yeah, put your virtual goggles on and drive it. Right, you could possibly do that type of stuff. So painting lines and and stop and all that type of stuff within uh, different uh, within the city streets, you could run this thing, right? If you if you have those templates, is that is that what we're talking about? Well, run them, like, but how long can they run for? Like, no, yeah, yeah, how, yeah. how long does the battery last on these? Yeah, we don't really know because it lasts too long to, for us to measure. But uh, wow. we, in our documentation, we say uh, eight or twelve hours. But uh, some customers come back and said the battery lasts for the whole weekend. Uh, so. So, so I'll, I'll think uh, between 12 and 24 hours, depending on depending on the use of, of the robot. And actually, it's it's a huge battery we put on. We just took the largest battery we could get as a standard battery and put on and, and let it run. So, so that's, than the that's not really a limitation. Longer than the human and, attention span of watching a line <laughs> being drawn by a robot. Apparently, yes. uh, are these so? Are, are these out in the wild right now? How many of these are deployed? I would say we, we don't give out precise numbers, but we are in the three-digit uh, numbers, so much I can I can say. So so you, you you could be lucky and see them around, both on the sports field and on the roads. I hope I do. They look really cool. Well, Jens, if people want to cool. uh, learn more about this and they want to connect with you, where do we send them to? Uh, to worldwideweb.tinymobilerobots.com. Uh, very, th- thank Very you cool. so much for joining us today, and thank you for staying up late. Uh, thank you to you, and, uh, and hello, Denmark. Oh, Take care, thank you very much. Great to meet you. Thank you. Thanks, Jens. Yeah, I mean, those are really cool. And I you, think they're very cool. You know, when we talk to Melanie Weiss, you, you know, and all these roboticists, they're always like, robots are really stupid. Like, they need to be told specific tasks. You know, they need, they need to be given certain things and, and instructions. This seems like the kind of thing a robot can, with modern technology, what a robot can do. And yeah, do I was really, uh, I, I had no idea that you had the ability to be that precise with a different, different types of GPS. I'm not kidding about the road lines either. Like, when I was driving, oh, no, road, I, it was I, terrible, dude. Well, I, no, I agree. I have one question I've always had is why why aren't they glow in the dark? I don't know. There's no, there's no, it, there's no How did this not occur to somebody? I don't know. I don't, let's get a little big deal, little deal, and we'll send you home, though. Big deal. Little deal.
All right, man. Dash cam footage shows a Tesla on autopilot hit a Nash Jeopardy cruiser. Roll this tape while I'm talking here Oof. so everyone can see a look at this. So you see those two guys are standing there. Yeah, Tesla came in. It smashed that car. It almost took those two deputies out. Well, this uh, this new release footage shows the moments after a Tesla on autopilot crashed in those patrol cars. It was in Nashville. As it said, it was on U.S. Highway 64. Um, the Tesla's driver was a someone named Devander Goley. He was a doctor from Raleigh who was watching a movie on his cell phone. Yeah. When the car drove itself right into that police car, according to officials, it does not say what movie this was. Uh, this footage is from August 2020. Tesla's statement says that their um, autonomous cars are not actually autonomous and drivers have to be paying attention at all times. Big deal, little deal, dude. It's a big deal, man, because people don't understand these these type of things. Dude is almost killed right there. Yeah. Man. That is that is awful. He's watching. He's. It's a big deal, man. People are silly, and they're going to do stuff like this as they get more and more comfortable. That's why I mean, saying it's not autonomous and you have to keep your hands on a wheel isn't isn't quite enough. I think there's some features that just need to not be there until it's safe enough to do it, right? Because people are going to do this crap. Yeah, I mean, look, and there's tons of Teslas driving out there that haven't gotten to accidents, so showing one video certainly magnifies what goes on, but it does show the flaw in these systems, that maybe yeah. even at night, too. And this isn't the first time we've heard of a Tesla no. hitting a car on the side of the road. So that's something they really have to figure out. And, you know, Tesla, they, they say, like, oh, we're, we're not saying it's autonomous. That's kind of a wink, because your marketing yeah, really exactly. is. Like, you call it full self-driving, you're calling things autonomous. Dude, what are dude, people to assume? I'm, I'm, I'm watching, I'm watching uh, 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 commercials on TV yeah. where the guys are driving down the road doing this stuff and clapping and all this kind of stuff, and it's just showing the car going down the road. It's not a Tesla commercial, though. Yeah. It's another one, which I it's won't someone mention. someone else doing it, but, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's human nature, too. It's a big too. deal. I mean, look, you, it's you, a big you, deal. you automate it. You know, there's going to be people who, who are just like, all right, I'm going to put on that episode of Bob Fett. Gonna watch, I can't wait to get home. going to watch the book. You're going to watch one on the way home? Oh, no. Finale. I don't you know might. if I Tesla yet, my Cybertruck. They, I'm going to sing We it. Don't Talk About Bruno the whole way home is what I'm going to do. Let's go north of the border, right? All right. For a little uh, big deal, got? little deal. Let's talk about the police ban of Jer uh, bringing jerry cans into downtown. What are you talking Ottawa. about? We're talking to CD Life. Sno <laughs> We're talking what? about Snowplow Driver first. Oh, we are talking about the Snow Driver. I'm sorry. I skipped right past that one. I'm sorry, man. You're yellow. Uh, okay. I know it. I know it. I'm <laughs> yellow. So let's bring this up on this watch. List. Snowplow Driver fired for blanketing dozens of vehicles with slush, injuring 18 people. Here you go. Take a look at this thing right here. Look at these images right here, this slush coming across the median here. This is in, in Ohio. He's terminated a 54-year-old Snowplow Driver, Timothy S. Reiki, after engaging in grossly negligent behavior as to endanger life, property, uh, public safety, or otherwise cause community. Uh, commission to be liable for damage. Uh, big deal, little deal, man, what this guy's doing here. I mean, you saw the damage to those cars, right? I mean, it yeah. was smashing people's windshields. That was look at awful. That. That's, a, that's, a, that's an 18-wheel. These that's are 18-wheels. So you look at the trajectory of this thing, and, and like you can imagine the drivers are probably covered in like slush and rocks and, and some of this glass, too. Um, th this was a horrible decision by this driver. He wasn't watching a movie. He has no full self-driving to blame this on or any of that kind of stuff. No. I think it's a it's a huge deal. Like, you got to understand how speed is. Maybe this dude, 54-year-old Timothy Racky, he's never been in an accident before, but you're making us Tims look bad, Mr. Racky. I don't think you should drive a plow anymore. That would be my verdict. <laughs> At least not that full, that fast. Maybe it was maybe self-driving. He was watching a movie. I don't know. Maybe it was. All right, maybe now we can talk about North right, Border. I'm sorry, man. I Police almost, I almost banned went. bringing jerry cans into downtown Ottawa. Yes, Convoy did. protesters responded by having every person carry a jerry can. Take, take a look at this. This is like... 
This is like an inside man when yeah. they have to leave and they dress everyone up the same so the police can't tell who is who. Yeah. Well, they banned the jerry cans. The auto police said we're going to arrest you. So what the, what the convoy protesters are doing is they're just having everybody carry jerry cans. <laughs> Many of them empty, some of them not. So the police have to stop and harass everybody to figure out which jerry can is in there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I love it. I think it's. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Listen to this cheering. I think we got one more video too. <laughs> See, you can hear. You can hear right there. Some of those are empty. They're just clapping them right together. You know, this is a movement. Justin Trudeau called it a fringe movement. Uh, I think a lot of people thought this thing. They would have been out there way sooner. They wouldn't have set up their own infrastructure and food kitchens. But look, we're talking about a bunch of farmers and truckers here. Of course, they have cranes. Of course, they have generators. Of course, they have equipment to to deal with this, right? One of the things that a lot of people have said to, because this is such a fight. There's such a fight going on about this. What do people believe? What they don't believe? Yeah, 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 yeah. And either side's fighting. Well, I just want to cite a survey here. This is a poll by Monmouth oh, University. Yeah, yeah. It was in the New York Times, and it said 70% of Americans agreed with this statement that it's time we accept COVID is here to stay, and we just need to get on with our lives. Support for vaccine mandates dropped to 43% from 53% in September, and support for masking, social distancing guidelines dropped to 52% from 63% over that same period. This is not just a vaccine issue, right? This is a mandate issue, but people also just want to move forward. And I think that the reason why vaccinated people, many of them, that numbers are dropping and they're yeah. starting to support this line of thinking is like, look, the vaccines are out there. We just don't want the power to shut things down again. Yeah, that's exactly what is going on. Because most of these, most of the people that are there are actually vaccinated. I mean, they were saying only seven percent of the drivers weren't vaccinated. Some most of, of Canada is. Yeah, most, most of, of Canada. Canada is. Most of the U.S. is. Well, They're already vaccinated. Just don't want it mandated. When the clock strikes midnight tonight, Alberta is ending their vaccine uh, mandate, uh, their, their vaccine passport policy. So we'll see. <laughs> What other changes come for this? But uh, yeah, 2022, it's going to be really, really tough to keep people compliant on this kind of stuff. Here's some memes, too. These jerry cans. I'm telling you, these jerry cans are a big deal in trucking Twitter, especially trucking Twitter. <laughs> talking that. about what's going on. We got the over the top. Here we got Stallone. We got the goose honking. By the way, they did ban honking, and uh, I hear that the drivers are complying. I think that's best for everybody. We've also got the Canadian flag with a jerry can on it, too, uh, yeah. right there. Yeah, so. I mean, look, I, I support you. I just want to be able to sleep. Cut the yeah. honking out. I love and again, it. you know, as long as the rhetoric is, is not bad, and I, and I feel like these drivers are not getting a fair shake yeah. at all a lot of times. Some of the MSN is just running. I think they're all listening to the same exact reporter and saying these same messages about what these drivers are doing. I watched a ton of videos. I'm not seeing a ton of violence. I'm not seeing nearly the no. negativity people are talking no. about. I am seeing those bounce castles, those soup kitchens, those jerry cans. I am seeing those things. I did hear the honking. Well, that's my answer to this and why I say it's a big deal. The big deal is because I'm not seeing the violence. I am seeing bounce houses out there, and I'm seeing people, you know, generally support. And it's not just a fringe movement, and it's not being hijacked by a bunch of maniacs, which is I I mean, it could be. You always have to be weary about these things. Like, there's some crypto funding raising going on. I would be weary of that. You all heard yeah. what happened with GoFundMe. Um, it, it can be tough. But in general, I think that why this movement has captured the minds of people is those numbers. That Monmouth University study, when you see it, a lot of people are saying, like, look, this, maybe last year, two years ago, it was about being anti-vax and anti-mask. And people were like, look, we need everyone to get to a certain point. But yeah, absolutely. a lot of us are there. Yep. All right, absolutely. what do you got? Yeah, so another thing to watch out is the dangers of a swan, right? They oh, yeah. live, these things live forever, dude. Do they? A <laughs> 63-year-old retired postman has got his own swan, female swan he's had for 37 years. He 37 rescued years? 37 years ago, he rescued this thing, took it home, it follows him everywhere. It's like his dog, it's like his best friend. Walks around doing chores around the farm and all this kind of stuff. 37 years ago, he rescued it. I've seen videos of swans, like, drowning kayakers. 
They are, they're like that. They're crazy. They'll chase you out of there. Well, we just want to stay around longer, but we're out of time. Find me on Twitter at Timothy Duna. That's D-O-O-N-E-R. Find him at Vincent the Dude. Subscribe to What the Truck wherever you get your podcast and tell them how to be. Hey, peace and love. Spread it everywhere.